It's nice to see a packed house and on such a nice day, too. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, what a day for a baptism or two. Praise be to God. And it just so happens on this very day on which all the angels in heaven are rejoicing, throwing a party over the outpouring of the heavenly gifts showered upon Olivia and Edward this morning through the waters of holy baptism. Well, what do you know? Who shows up from the pages of scripture in our reading today? It's none other than John the Baptist, the Baptist. Now, he's not the Southern Baptist, mind you, uh, although they, along with every Christian denomination, would count him as a true prophet of God. And we kid about his name. There's a lot of John the Baptist jokes. But point in fact, John the Baptist in his day was probably not anyone you'd ever want to dare messing around with. He was downright scary, not just in his wild man looks, his matted camel fur garment, and his locust breath, no. It was his message, more than anything else, that was the most frightening thing about him. He had a clear calling, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He was a prophesied prophet who was to come and prepare the way of the Lord. John was the only one beside our Lord Jesus Christ himself whose own coming upon the scene was specifically prophesied about. Other prophets were not pre-introduced, if you will. That is, they were not foretold of like John. We, were, we weren't told, for example, about the prophet Amos coming upon the scene at some appointed time in Israel's future. Nor were God's people even foretold of the great Isaiah's appearance. The only other prophet who comes close would be Elijah the prophet, who was predicted to return someday before the Lord's coming. And even there, though, Jesus seems to link Elijah's return with the person and ministry of John the Baptist. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, Jesus tells his disciples, in Matthew 11, adding, and if you are willing to accept it, John is the Elijah who was to come. This echoes what the angel Gabriel had already told John's parents before John was even born. Said Gabriel, he, that is John, will go on before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the way of righteousness, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This was John's calling then, preparation. And he had some serious credentials going for him. If all that already said about John wasn't enough, Jesus states it plainly to the crowd. I tell you the truth, among all those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Wow, talk about an endorsement, right? But Jesus isn't even done yet. Right there, after that grand statement about John, Jesus adds this shocking tagline. No one is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And there, Jesus just drops the mic. Boom. Did you catch what he's saying there? Who is greater than than the greatest prophet ever of God. 
according to no less an authority than Jesus Christ, our Lord himself. Who is greater? Answer. The little children. You. Me. By simple faith. The baptized. Faith is, according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, a free gift. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This gift of faith comes by the Holy Spirit to all baptized children of God. How many times throughout this, his earthly ministry did Jesus tell the trusting individual who came up to him, son, your faith has healed you, or daughter, your faith has saved you, or simply your faith has made you whole? Well, there are numerous occasions on which Jesus responds in just this fashion to those who exercise their faith. Jesus validates their faith. Implicit in all of these cases, of course, is that that faith of all these individuals was where? It was in him, King Jesus, the incarnate word of God. Let's not forget that. Your faith is distinctly in the Savior. That's the faith that saves, not just any arbitrary faith. Faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. This is an important distinction that really needs to be made today. And it has always been true, but today it may be even more important than at any other time, at least in America's history. I heard a line of dialogue just yesterday from the new trailer for the next Indiana Jones movie, the fifth and final installment starring the original Indy himself, Harrison Ford. I'm looking forward to it. You know, it's just not the same when Harrison Ford isn't playing the lead. Now, he may be 80 years old now, but with a little digital makeup magic, they make him out to be a pretty convincing younger version of himself in those flashback scenes. But here's that dubious line from the trailer that I mentioned that bothered me. Says an older, wiser Indiana Jones, I've come to believe it is not so much what you believe, it's how hard you believe it. I've come to believe it's not so much what you believe, but how hard you believe it. Now, is that a problem for you too? It certainly is for me. Perhaps when the movie comes out, giving it the best spin I can, uh, that will be next summer, by the way, I might come to understand that particular line better when I hear it within the whole context of the movie, right? But my guess is most Americans won't have any problem with that statement at all, period. On its face, the statement, it's how hard you believe, suffers from the so-called faith-in-faith fallacy. We've all seen versions of this misplaced faith before in movies and in real life for a Famous example, you can go all the way back to the original 1940s Pinocchio. I'm remaking some of those Pinocchio movies as well. But in the original, you can go back and sing along with Jiminy Cricket, right? When you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. Is it that simple? Which star? Tell me which star or 
Um, maybe it's just the first one that appears in the night sky, some say, right? Tell me, and I won't need to buy any more lottery tickets. Not that I do anyway. Isaiah, who, by the way, is one of those Old Testament prophets himself who prophesied about John's coming. In his own way, Isaiah anticipates John's fiery message some 700 years earlier with a sobering wake-up message of his own that he sounds against the nation of Israel. From our Old Testament reading today, he, that is God, shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Isaiah 11.4. With the Lord's prophets raising the stakes now up to the critical level of life and death, what object of our faith is strong enough to protect all of us sinners from God himself and his holy anger against all mankind's wickedness. John the Baptist's cry went out indiscriminately to all classes of the Jewish people of his day, rich and poor alike. His task was to lift up every valley and lay low every mountain and hill. That's from Isaiah 40. So no one, in effect, was safe John didn't hold back, even if it was the highly esteemed Sanhedrin caste coming to the desert to check him out. I'm talking about the ruling Pharisees and Sadducees who walked around in their day all tall and proud. John didn't care. He would take them down and level them out too as quickly as anybody else, pointing out our hardened hearts and selfish sins was essentially the great equalizer that indicts everyone before God's face. Before God, the high-ranking offices held by those religious elites, that, those offices could not protect them nor hide their hearts of stone that they were guilty of having. In fact, John had some choice words ready just for them. You brood of vipers, he cried. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So John was not a respecter of persons, was he? Those Jewish leaders in their day thought they could hide behind their self-constructed walls of pious outward actions. Or maybe they were counting on their genealogical connection with Abraham to somehow exempt themselves from divine accountability. Now in America, a so-called Christian nation, not really, but there are those who want to think of it that way, we sometimes think we can hide behind that moniker. I'm an American, therefore I'm a Christian. But that doesn't work here today in America anymore. Like it, and it didn't work anymore back in the first century for the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Judah. With his prophetic acts, John was ready to cut that one down too. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children of Abraham. This stone reference reminds me of what Jesus said to some of the same religious leaders who protested all the hosannas and other praises that Jesus was receiving in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Remember that? And the Pharisees complained then, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
So if piety and pedigree cannot withstand the coming judgment of God, where then, pray tell, or in what can we trust? In America, our coinage says, in God we trust, but it is this God of whom we are most afraid or should be most afraid if we're not, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. To answer that, where do we go? Where is our our hiding place? Perhaps yet another prophet of God and even another baptism alluded to? Maybe they can offer some hope and some comfort for sinners. If in doubt, take cover in the gracious promises of God, right? Like this one from the prophet Ezekiel. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors." You will be my people, and I will be your God. How wonderful does that sound? That's from Ezekiel 36. John's baptism, maybe you noticed already, did not confer the Holy Spirit. However, the baptism to which he pointed, that is, from the one who would come after him, that one indeed does confer the Holy Spirit. Listen again. Here's John. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's baptism of repentance was only preparatory to confess our sins and expose our need for a Savior. But it didn't bestow the Holy Spirit, nor did it immediately connect you with the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, as St. Paul describes Christian baptism doing as he's writing to the Romans. Don't you know, writes Paul, that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Right there in Romans 6. St. Paul does acknowledge through Christian Trinitarian baptism, the connection with Christ is made. The sinner is washed and then plugged into Christ, the true vine, that shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse. Gentiles even are plugged into that, plugged into Christ, our only true object of our faith. When we get to St. Peter now on the feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it all seems to come together for us. To those who received his message that day, Peter directs them. He he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off whom the Lord our God will call. That's Acts 2, 38 and 39. Forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, and later the fruit of the Spirit 
that he, he will grow and manifest in your life, in the life of us Christians. The assurance of a promise, a promise made even to children. This is the greater baptism into Christ to which the baptism of John points and for which we are therefore grateful. And like John, we, the community of the baptized, can now say with John the baptizer, as he points to Jesus Christ, he must increase as I decrease. Dear Lord, let it be so. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.